Welcome to Thriving with Technology, the tech wellness podcast. It's conversation and information designed to bring balance to your relationship with technology. Your host is August Bryce. Hi, thanks for joining us today on Thriving with Technology. Today we have some really good news, actually. That's something that we don't often get good news about, social media. You know, a top researcher says that 5 to 10% of social media users, us, today may meet the criteria for being at risk for a social media addiction. So today's show, we're speaking to Dr. Ofer Terrell. He's an associate professor, and this is a long title, of Information Systems and Decision Sciences at California State University in Fullerton. Dr. Terrell studies behavior and managerial issues in technology-focused environments. And lately, he's been looking at how people interact with various social media platforms And he's looking at social media addiction, which we know is common because the platforms that that we all visit are designed to keep us online longer. And that's because that way we'll see more ads and the platform can make more money. That's what it's all about. So in some people, addiction isn't a problem in others. If you have a low self-control system in your brain, which most of us do, and it's not a flaw, then you're less likely to be able to resist. The really good news is that Dr. Terrell's studies show that what we think of as a social media addiction in many cases really isn't an addiction at all, and we don't have to keep checking those platforms unless we want to. Dr. Terrell found out that unlike some other addictions, the control center of our brains are in perfect working order, and he's going to tell us how to access that and how we can just stop ourselves, how we can get offline. Even heavy users can see a change in their behavior. However, in the case of kids, they aren't necessarily going to see that they're moving towards a problem with their behavior. So it's up to us as parents to help. So he's going to give us some tips for doing that too. And we're going to talk about a true addiction, online gaming addiction, which can be very, very serious. The World Health Organization actually has it classified as a diagnosis now because it really is affecting our brains and our children's health. So he's going to dispel a myth about how much time we really need to be playing games online in order to develop really great hand-to-eye coordination. So stay tuned for that part too. So I'm really excited today to introduce you to Dr. Terrell. Here we go. Okay, Dr. Terrell, so you're a professor of information systems and decision sciences. That is correct. That's an incredible title. I love it. Yeah, well, I, I got used to it. <laughs> Did you, is there actually a school of information systems and decision sciences? No, it's under the business school, the Maelo College of Business in Economics at uh, California State University, Fullerton. I think it's so great for Cal State Fullerton to have someone like you. I mean, you're one of the leading researchers in social media and addictions, right? Uh, well, if you say so, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think so. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about the study because I don't know if you've looked at my site, if you visited techwellness.com, did you get a chance to... Uh, very, very briefly yesterday. Wonderful, wonderful site. Thank you. Well, as you know, one of my experts is Dr. Kimberly Young, who coined the term internet addiction back in the 90s. Are yeah, you familiar I, with her? I, I am familiar with her work. Never met her, but uh, I am very familiar with her works. Yes. Well, she was really a trailblazer back in the day, right? When people thought she was crazy. 
And the interesting thing is, I think today we still have a lot of people that really are not convinced that there actually could be an addiction to anything on the internet, including social media. Yeah, I think at the, the core problem with this uh, statement or with, with believing that there is an addiction is that there is disagreement about what addiction means. And it's not just about technology or the internet, it's in general, I mean, uh, People use many terms, behaviors, problematic behaviors. The internet is not just the first thing that raised controversies regarding possible addictions. Think about issues such as gambling. Gambling is not fully accepted as an addiction. I mean, everybody knows that there are people with gambling problems, but not everybody agrees that this should be called an addiction. Well, what do you think? I have no preference as long as we solve the issue and treat these people. It doesn't matter how you call it. You see, there are different stakeholders in this this business. So, uh, of course, there is the medical care providers, there is the insurance uh, company, health insurance companies, and everything you do has has implications, many, I guess, broader implications. Uh, So it's it's not a simple question. I, I don't think that we could overnight call everything we do an addiction. That would over pathologize many people who have... I mean, if some problems or excessively use, let's say, video games, it's not going to be an easy uh, transition. We need to make sure before we put this label on people, you're an addict. Uh, We want to make sure that we know what it means. We want to make sure that there is strong science behind it. Yeah, well, I think a lot of parents and a lot of you know, young women, young men, I know you really highlighted that there was a big difference in the brains of young women on social media versus men. But I know a lot of us are concerned just what it's doing to us emotionally. And whether you call it an addiction, an obsession, a compulsion, it's the fact that we're a bit controlled by the social media and not controlled in a good way. We're sacrificing maybe other more important things in our life. And so if it's not an addiction, we, we you just want to call it a social media problem? Uh, yeah, in many of my studies, we call it problematic use of social media. And the problems are not necessarily, you see, when you say addiction, it means that it manifests itself in typical addiction symptoms like withdrawal, uh, inability to control your behavior, the constant need to increase the use of social media, and we don't necessarily see all of these problems in, in many of the users who present what they call social media addiction. So at this point, terminology is not clear. I'm not advocating any terminology at this point. I just want to say that, you know, we, sh- we should be careful with the over-pathologizing issue. We don't want to call 50% of the population of users as addicted to social media. We know there are issues. We know that we want to fix them. But how we call these issues, that's, that's a different story. Gotcha. I'm totally on board. I really am excited, though, with your research on what happens to our brains. When you've taken people, did you call them addicted or did you call them uh, heavy users of social media? Tell me about the, the, the way you define people in the study. Well, normally when I recruit people and try to find those who are sort, sort of addicted, quote-unquote, uh, we look for people who are heavy users, and then we subject them to screening. Uh, we give them questionnaires that ask them about withdrawal symptoms and, and 
constant need to increase the behavior and problems that uh, may, may have uh, or may be related to the use, excessive use of social media, for example, deteriorated functioning in school, deteriorated social life. And based on that, we give them a score. So we don't normally classify them as addicted versus non-addicted. We use this score as a continuous variable. So some people would have very low scores on the addiction scale. Some people may have very high scores on the addiction scale. Uh, where to put the cutoff and say, you know, if you're above this threshold, you're addicted, that's a scientific question that has not been addressed yet. Right. So you took people that were basically heavy users and compared them to people who weren't, and you looked at their brains. And you, uh, and you tried to find... users. Yes, let me... I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, it's not just heavy users. We made sure that they meet common addiction criteria or they have very high score on these addiction criteria. Okay, so you were looking for people that were heavy users and that we don't like to use the term addicted, but quote-unquote addicted. Uh, present, what I call them is present addiction-like symptoms. Good, okay, I like that. Present withdrawal symptoms, for example, but withdrawal symptoms in the case of social media may be just feeling agitated a little bit when you're prevented from accessing your social media, uh, as opposed to, you know, foaming and having headaches and physiological symptoms uh, when, when you're prevented from using illicit substances in some cases. Okay, and that was, that's what you tried to do because a lot of people compare, like you said, gambling addictions, drug addictions, internet addictions, they, they compare the different symptoms and so, and that's how they try to identify the quote-unquote uh, addictions, or how did you say it? People, addictive-like addiction, uh, qualities? Addiction-like symptoms. Addiction-like symptoms. Okay. So, you were looking, because we've done studies of brains of people who are addicted to chemicals, and so you were looking for the difference or the similarities in brains of people who were presenting addictive-like symptoms to Correct. social media. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what did you find out? Uh, we, find, we found that uh, there are some similarities, but importantly, there are also some differences uh, between uh, the brains of people who are addicted, so-called so addicted to social media and those who are addicted to substances. The similarity relates to uh, being or having hypersensitive reward system in the brain. So this is the system that releases dopamine, makes us feel good every time we, we experience something uh, sure. pleasurable. Yes. yes, we've heard a lot about dopamine be in relation to everything about our devices, right? In relationship to likes, notifications, even texting can release dopamine in our brains, and it's very exciting. It's a feel-good chemical, correct? Correct. So every time we, for example eat a cake or something that we enjoy, uh, the brain releases dopamine, it makes us feel good and basically trains the brain to want more of what we just experienced. Okay, so you looked at the dopamine in the brains of these heavy users of social media and compared it to what? To people who are uh, also addicted to other chemicals? No, we, we didn't. Uh, that would be an interesting study. Okay. We compared that. Uh, <laughs> We compared people with low scores on the addiction scale versus people with high scores on the addiction scale. 
Okay, go ahead. And uh, what happened, I mean, there are different levels of differences. So one, one type of studies is um, functionality or functioning studies where we look at activity in these brain regions. And this brain region was much more active in response to social media images compared to people with low uh, addiction scores. So that means it's more sensitive. It responds faster to uh, these social media cues. So whenever you see someone using social media or even someone using a cell phone, it triggers this cue in your brain. And basically, um, this system creates motivation to want or desire if even uh, this behavior. So really, these are the people who are enjoying it more. Yes, yes. But, you know, it becomes out of control in some cases. So, uh, and, and the system is also smaller, meaning it has lower gray matter volume in people who present higher addiction scores. Okay, so let's talk a second about what is gray matter? What, why is it important that we have more of it versus less of it? Okay, it's, it's basically the number of neurons and it defines your computational capacity of a certain brain region. Mm, so it is important. Uh, having less or more, though, is, uh, is not always, does not always carry the same meaning. Sometimes having more is better. Sometimes having less is better. Uh, in the case of the reward system, having less means that you need to think about it as having a smaller engine in a car. So you need to push more gas into this engine to produce the same acceleration as you would have with a larger engine or power, I guess, right? So um, what it means in the case of the brain is that we need more of the activity, social media use in our case, to release the same amount of dopamine that you would have or expect with a larger brain region. Ah, okay, I get it. So this, this creates the compulsion and the obsession because we want more and we have less gray matter to push it through. We have, we, we have lower capacity to produce dopamine, to release dopamine, so right. we want more of the activity to produce the same level of dopamine that would satisfy us. Hmm. And so do you conclude that they started with less gray matter and so they That's, need more? Or do you conclude that we actually had a decrease in gray matter because of the social media use? Uh, very important question. We don't know. Uh, because uh, most of our studies are correlational in nature, meaning that we don't, we cannot infer uh, cause and effect in, in our studies. So we do not know if some people had in advance, a priori, lower gray matter volume, and this is why they developed uh, addiction, in our case, sort of addiction to social media. Or it could be that excessive use of social media created such level of enjoyment that basically this brain region adapted and became smaller. So sometimes neurons die in this uh, being trimmed or what we call pruned. And this happens in many cases when there is overexcitement, at least in substance use, this is what we see. So with substances, we know that this brain region changes in many cases. But one explanation does not disqualify the other. It could be that both explanations are valid. Uh, there is a third explanation, by the way, 
that mm-hmm. there is some, uh, and, and this has some evidence for support in the literature, that there are some genetic mutations that basically affect the reward system for some people, and these are the people who are more likely to become alcoholics or addicted to substances and possibly also uh, use social media. And if you think about it, using social media or video games is a relatively healthy addiction compared to the other substance addictions out there. Ah, and that's true. So I think it's more about how either parents, you know, of, of young kids or even of adolescents, teacher, teenagers, how the parents might feel about the way the kids are using it and thinking that it might be interfering with other healthy aspects of their lives, or it's how we feel about it ourselves if we feel that we're too obsessed. So when do you know and what do you suggest people do? You are right uh, in saying that it's, it's not about how much you use the technology. Some people may use technology all day, like I work on my computer all day. It doesn't make me an addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, things become an addiction or a problem, if you will, if they interfere with normal functioning. And to what extent they interfere with normal functioning, that's a medical question, I guess, that is not well uh, defined. So if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, they don't explain what it means to have important impairment in normal fun- or large impairment in normal functioning. What is large, what is meaningful, uh, it's not well defined. So for some people, minor uh, reduction in grades in school may be major influence of, or major uh, reduction in normal functioning. Mm-hmm. For others, uh, it may require more than that. So uh, I, I think we all need to just pay attention. Uh, just be more aware of what uh, technology does to us and when it interferes with what we want to see as normal functioning. If our normal functioning is sitting and playing video games all day, then that's fine. But if you see that basically you lose your job, your grades deteriorate if you're a child, uh, if you lose social contact with other people that you wanted to stay in touch with, uh, that, that means that there is some negative influence of the way you use technology on normal functioning. And this is where things get unhealthy and require some intervention. Okay. And then what are those interventions? Because, see, I get a lot of, of requests from moms and a lot of concern parents who talk to me about the fact that they see their children obsessed with their technology. They see that their children are quickly turning to their phones any second that they get. And once they're in a game or once they're on their Instagram or their Snapchat or their TikTok, they just they, they just can't get them off of it. And their joy and their intensity is so great when they're actually interacting with their device, but then they seem almost depressed or uh, not able to interact on just the normal, you know, level that you would with friends and family. So that's where I see the concern. And I hear what you're saying that it's not, you know, keep it under control. It's fine as long as it doesn't affect your health. So their health isn't being affected, but they just don't feel that it's healthy, normal behavior. So what do you do to prevent it? And what do you do once you get to that point? It's not about health. It's about normal functioning. The other part of the set of studies I started mentioning about the brain is uh, the self-control system in the brain, 
So it's not just about rewards that motivate behavior. Uh, we have another system in the brain that governs self-control. And basically, this is the system that tells us when we see a piece of cake, it's yummy. We know, we know it's going to release dopamine in the brain. So that creates motivation to consume the cake. But then there is the other part of the brain that tells us, you know what, that's not good for you. That's unhealthy. You already have enough sugar today. Uh, don't eat this piece of cake. So this is the self-control system. And in many cases of addiction, this system is hypoactive, meaning it's less active, it's weaker, it doesn't have the control abilities that we would like to have. In the cases of social media addiction, we did not find impairment in this system, which is good news. That means that if people have strong enough motivation to self-control their behavior, they could do that. It's not that their brain is not in order and things need to uh, be fixed. They have the capability. They just need to have the motivation to do it. So That's huge. This is really important. I'm not saying it's relevant for everyone. I'm sure in extreme cases, there are people with impairments to their self-control system. But on average, even excessive users have self-control abilities. And that means that having a talk with your child is, is important. Just explaining these are the risks, this is what happens. Uh, we don't want to prevent the use of technology and it's healthy to use technology to some extent. But at some point, you need to sort of self-regulate and control your behavior. It can work in some cases, not in all cases. So I'm sure you, you discussed it with uh, Dr. Young as well. I mean, she is probably more severe cases where uh, other treatment approaches are needed. If you look at the average person that is slight excessive gamer or excessive uh, social media user, in many cases, just trying to self-control the behavior through understanding, rationalizing that this is unhealthy uh, is, is going to be good enough. And there are many ways to do it. So now, uh, if you think about not all of them, but many technology service providers now allow you to view how, many, how much time you spent on the technology. So iOS 12 in mm -hmm. iPhone, yeah, Facebook gives you that. Uh, so it's easy to sort of monitor how much time is spent on these activities. And it's also uh, easy to restrict them. So there are many applications out there that would allow you to uh, block content of certain types after certain hours, allow you only to spend certain amount of time on certain activities. Uh, but again, th these are just technical solutions. I think that the first step is basically understand that this is a bit unhealthy. Therefore, you need to control it. I, I like to see in many cases, or I always say that technology is like food. We cannot live without it nowadays. It's not that we expect people to go back to the woods and, you know, uh, do of course. Avo avoid technology at all. We, we cannot do that. At the same time, like food, we need to be mindful of what we intake or about our food intake, in this case about our technology intake or technology diet, and try to control it. I love the, the findings. I love what you have explained to us about the control center. I think that's huge. And I think a lot of parents will feel really encouraged by that information because then it becomes more of a learning for the child instead of, oh my gosh, this is a medical issue that we need help for. Uh, and yes, Dr. Young talks a lot about the digital diet. She brought it up 20 years ago and I think it's amazing and it works just like, like food. 
just yeah. exactly what you're saying. Not just the intake, it's also the schedule. Right, so, exactly. You, know, you, could, you could say, okay, social media just from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., that's it. I'm with you. I get it. There's, there's this uprising, though, of this idea that parents should mentor versus monitor. And it really seems to be because I, I was fortunate enough to bring up my kids partially without technology when they were little. And then as they got older, of course, there was a lot of technology around. I could see that really being a parent was being a very involved parent. And so the mentoring versus monitoring uh, approach means that you're with them all the time going through their technology with them. You're looking at the social media feed with them. You're talking to them about what they're seeing. You're talking to them about how they feel. You're talking to them about bullies and not bullying and appropriate behavior online. And that's a great idea, but I think it's difficult when that third person in the room, of course, is the phone and you you, you can't really be with your child 24-7 to mentor them through everything. So what do you think about that approach? Oh, it's wonderful if it's feasible. So not all children, depending on the age, right? So not all of them would let you get involved in their social media activities or video gaming activities. But certainly anything that uh, is tilted toward mentoring more than monitoring is better. But I think a little bit of both is, is good. Like you want to monitor, you want to uh, mentor, you want to do everything you can to make sure they develop healthy behaviors. At the end of the day, it, it could have long, long-term consequences. In, in one of our studies done in Canada, we looked at video game addiction in uh, children, young children, uh, 9 to 17 years old. We looked at their sleep habits, their levels of obesity, and basically excessive video gaming was linked to poor sleep. And poor sleep, sleep regulates the release of hormones that govern appetite in the stomach. So uh, poor sleep basically led to uh, increased obesity and cardiometabolic risks. When children develop these sort of uh, cardiometabolic risks, uh, it's very difficult to eliminate them later on in life. They develop higher risks of uh, having heart attacks before the age of 50 and so on. There are many statistics about it. There are many facets that, you know, should be controlled. And um, it's, yeah, it's that's, that I think you just made a huge case for uh, monitoring, right? And yes. So that's what I'm saying. You need to balance monitoring. You need to balance mentoring. Uh, you know, in, in reality, uh, not all parents are capable of monitoring. Some of them have to work like three jobs and, uh, you know, they, they're not always there in their children's life. So uh, it's not feasible to mentor all the time. Well, Dr. Uh, Terrell, you're leading me to ask the question that, that every parent really wants just the hard answer to, which is, well, then how much? How much is too much video gaming every day? And at what age should we start letting the kids play? Let me start by saying that I am totally not against video games. I think uh, a little bit of video gaming is healthy, actually, because there are studies showing that it displaces other uh, relatively undesirable activities. For example, children who play a little bit of video gaming use less substances, illicit substances, compared to children who do not play video games. How and old are these children using illicit substances? How old? Uh, in this study specifically, it was 13 to 16 years old or 13 to 17. Okay, big kids. Teenagers. 
So um, what happens basically when you think about it, playing video games in many cases, if you live in a rough neighborhood, it's uh, a good displacement. It's better playing video games at home than hanging out on the streets and getting exposed to substances, violence, and so on. So um, video games by themselves, and, and also there is much evidence that video games help with certain skills. So uh, there was a large study showing that actually one, one hour of video gaming uh, helped improve motor skills and eye coordination, which is important, especially if you want to play baseball and things like that. A fly a helicopter? A fly helicopter, yeah. I mean, there are lots of, be a surgeon, be a dentist. Uh, sure. I mean, there are a lot of uh, jobs that require good hand-eye coordination. An hour a day? Hour a week, actually. It was one, one and a half hours a week or something like that. So it wasn't much. So a little bit is, is okay, and it improves uh, certain skills. After that, it doesn't contribute much. So if you play three hours a week or five hours a week, it doesn't do much in terms of further improvement to uh, end-eye coordination, but it creates school problems if you play more than 40 hours a week. You know what? It's just like we say all the time at Tech Wellness. It's about balance. It's about balance with every aspect of our technology. It really is. Yeah. To your question, before there is no like magic number. This is what's working for you. It really depends on your school load, on your uh, social uh, involvement and other things. So I, I think that where, where you need to put a cutoff is where things get a little bit uh, messy in terms of normal functioning. And what is normal functioning depends or varies from one family to another. So uh, you should look at thing, things like uh, school performance, social uh, performance, things like that, and basically consider if, if they're healthy or not. And if they're not healthy, then it's time to have this uh, discussion with your child or uh, stronger mentoring and monitoring activities like you mentioned. We hear a lot from parents about how their children seem to be more in their zone when they're on social media and when they're playing games than they are in normal functioning life. And so seeing that, I can understand how it's difficult for a parent to say, get off your social media. No more Instagram today. No more Snapchat today. No more selfies today. And no more gaming today. But at the same time, it's when the kids are actually laughing and smiling and and having great energy. What do your studies say about that, about behavior and emotions? And like I said, normal communication because technology is like really their vehicle where they're, where they're feeling normal. We're having the first or even second generation now that basically grew up with technology and they start using iPads by the age of one and, uh, and play games and watch videos and they're very tech savvy, certainly more tech savvy than, than many of the parents. They, they know what to do and they feel natural with technology, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that they should use it too excessively. Think about uh, the generations like 100 years ago, food was uh, scarce. People grew up with not much food. And if you think about after the 50s, uh, we had the first generation that had abundant food and had no need to look for extra food. It doesn't mean that they need to eat more. 
It just means that now they have access to food and they know how to uh, find good restaurants, but it, they just need to uh, decide to what extent they want to eat and how much they want to eat and where they want to eat. So they have more flexibility. And I think this is like the, the young generation nowadays. So they have access to technology. They know how to use it. They're very comfortable with it. But it doesn't mean that they should use it excessively and rely solely on technology. There are many other things in life beyond that. So what was the biggest learning from your study? I, do you have kids? I am a parent, yes. Okay. So, so how does this apply to what you do as a dad? and what, what you allow your children to do on their technology. So uh, exactly like you mentioned, there is a little bit of mentoring, there is a little bit of monitoring, but there is uh, also some hands-off approach in many cases because it's, it's impossible to be fully involved in whatever uh, children do with, with technology, especially since it, it is weaved to many other aspects of life, like schoolwork. So a lot of schoolwork is now done via computers or on the cell phone. Children could compare answers or discuss assignments over social media. So um, it, it's impossible to totally be involved in it or eliminate it. But I, I try to uh, make sure that I know what is done. And uh, when, when things are a bit excessive, and you could see it through uh, grade and social activity, there are great reductions and social activities that... Um, you could sense that things are a little bit off and then you could uh, increase monitoring or even even prevent technology use in some cases. Yeah, so it's just you're just being a mindful, intuitive parent. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Well, you know, I feel if you've looked at, at tech wellness, I have a really strong feeling about the electromagnetic energy that comes from the device and the blue light that comes from the device, as well as all of the other emotionally addictive components of our devices. So I think the combination can be harmful. So to me, if we're going to use technology, we use orange glasses and we use a stylus so that we are not as close to the energy and we put the phone on airplane mode or we connect it to the internet so that we're not exposed to RF radiation. So I think all those things in combination add up to good, healthy use with our technology. But particularly with social media, I just did a story on how selfies actually decrease a woman's self-esteem and confidence and anxiety just by virtue of taking them. How, does that, how do you think that compares to what you found out about gray matter and adaptation in your study? Well, this is just, it's not directly related to the findings of, of my studies, but uh, certainly it's another problematic aspect of social media because people compare themselves. I mean, it's a natural thing. We always compare ourselves to others. When we grew up, uh, we had our friends, so we had like a small circle to compare ourselves to. Uh, now people have thousands of friends or potential uh, comparison or reference points, and many of them are things that you could, I guess, personalities or individuals that you could easily envy if you have millions of followers and you are Kim Kardashians and so on, you compare yourself to these individuals and that puts you in a very defensive, weak spot. And of course, this is unhealthy. So again, being mindful can help with, with this regard as well. So, you know, there are a lot of influential people on social media, a lot of people with a lot of wealth and better pictures, better selfies than yours. But if you're mindful of how social media works, and how it promotes these individuals 
uh, and you train yourself not to feel bad about it, that's uh, going to be, you, you're going to have a healthier relationship with your social media. If okay. not, you're going to develop things like envy uh, in others. And obviously this is very unhealthy because you, you set yourself goals that are unattainable. I mean, most people are not going to uh, reach the level of influence or looks or um, number of followers or whatever metric you want to use of the, the big names on social media. It's so if a big that's task. Your, yeah, if that's your goal, uh, you're set for failure. Yeah. Well, did you see that in your homeland, Canada, Instagram has a pilot study where they are taking off the like button for all followers to see. So you go on and you look at Kim Kardashian, but you don't see how many likes she has. And they're thinking about rolling this out all of Instagram. What do you think about that idea? Um, It's a, I mean, it has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, first of all, they just rolled it out on an experimental basis, so I don't know if they're going to continue with that. We, we shall wait and see, and, right. and you know, we want to see if it works for them. So basically, they're portraying themselves as uh, uh, well-being conscious. They try to, they realize that, you know, f- chasing likes is unhealthy, and therefore they try to eliminate that. Is it good for the bottom line? I don't know. I mean, many people may appreciate that, but at the same time, keeping on scrolling for likes, checking uh, social media again and again to see if you have more likes creates traffic for them, and traffic is their source of revenue eventually. Yes, but you're not questioning whether or not it's actually good for, for the psyche or the soul, right? You're saying it's probably good. Oh, for yeah. So from an Instagram standpoint, I don't know if it's good or bad, but from a user standpoint, it's excellent because basically it eliminates this this temptation, this chase after likes. People constantly keep on checking likes because it's like gambling. You post a picture, you don't know if you're going to get five likes or 100 likes, and you keep on checking. If you have more likes and more likes, it's very tempting. Uh, this is a very unhealthy behavior especially when you compare yourself to other people who have more likes than you are. And that's where, we, that's where the gray matter comes in. Yeah, so it's all about the reward system in the brain. So this is where it ties to my studies, I guess. The use of social media is driven by rewards, by social rewards that every time we get like, dopamine is released in our brain. And every time someone comments uh, on, on our post positively, I guess, uh, it releases dopamine in our brain. Our brain is trained to look for more of these dopamine releases. And therefore, we repeat this behavior again and again. It's sometimes excessively, sometimes in very dangerous situations, by the way. Uh, Like like using social media while driving is very common nowadays. Uh, Right. That's huge. That's a whole separate idea. But as far as this gray matter goes, and we know that lack of gray matter and what appeared to be social media addictive symptoms correlated. So little brain matter, more social media addiction. How can we increase the gray matter? Uh, so uh, that's, that's a very medical question. The intent is not necessarily to increase gray matter. So we have in addicted individuals, we have lower gray matter in the reward system, but their self-control system is intact, which means that they just need to activate or have motivation to activate the self-control system and that's it. Growing gray matter, that's, uh, there are many solutions uh, ranging from pharmacology to, uh, but, but again, you have to target very specific regions. 
Or maybe if you stop rewarding behaviors, you train yourself, uh, you could grow neurons in this region. But again, I, do, I don't think that should be a target. The target should be basically to activate your self-control system. It's not bad to have craving to use social media. That's okay, as long as you can control it. So craving by itself is not bad. If you cannot control it, that becomes an issue. Tell an addicted person how to control. Uh, first of all, it's like the first step in, in uh, any, any addiction treatment, I guess. Uh, just acknowledge that you have an issue. In many cases, uh, people just don't realize that they have an issue because the symptoms are so benign. I mean, what happens if you play video games excessively, still enjoy with a bunch of friends online? By the time your uh, school grades deteriorate, uh, it's, it's too late. It's like two years down the road. So you, you don't, or many people don't feel the symptoms immediately. It's not like substance addiction. Right. Let's take it back to social media. So how do you tell somebody who's looking at their feed 20 times an hour that it's time to pull back and have some self-control? Well, again, it, it goes back to whether it interferes with normal functioning. And it's, it, it varies from one individual to another. So there well, you is might no, not think it. You might not think it is. If you're doing it yourself, you're you're like, hey, it's fine. It's the people around you who say, hey, Lizzie, that's a little too much. Yeah. So this is where parents have a discussion, and and, and there are many ways that people could basically help themselves with this. For example, uh, when you work on school assignments or work assignments, just put the cell phone away. It's very distracting to have these new message beeps from friends all the time or eliminate uh, notifications. On my email, I don't have notifications because it's, it's almost impossible to work when new emails pop up every second. Put the phone away, that's, that's the easiest uh, way to control it. You don't need any technical measure. You work in a particular room, put the phone somewhere else. And that somewhere else is very important. I'm sure you're familiar with that study from uh, Texas, the distraction study, how they put the phone down right in front of you and, and uh, your cognition was impaired. They took the phone and put it in another room away, and that was the only way that it didn't interrupt your cognitive function. Yeah, so even if the phone is next to you, you always, I mean, it's a cue. It's associated in your brain with dopamine release. So you're always busy. Your brain is busy trying to self-control the temptation to uh, check your phone. So the easiest way... Even if way it's off, to, even if it's off, that's the important Even way. if it's all face down, you just need to like put it in a different room. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I think we covered the most fascinating thing that you found about the study, right? Was the control... To summarize this point, yeah, and better or more directly address your question, the fascinating thing was that self-control abilities are intact, which means that a lot of people could actually self-control their behavior. And if you think about it, think about kids who started using social media three, four years ago, and people may have thought that they're addicted. Most of them, I guess, I mean, it's, I speculate here, overcame their addiction because they, they sort of understood that this is too much and they had enough motivation to self-control their behavior. Some cannot, I understand that, but most, most people who may be termed as addicts are not actually addicts. They're, they're excessive users that present addiction-like symptoms, but can still self-control their behavior if they have sufficient motivation to do so. That's such great news. Do you want to give us any ideas of motivation? Parents to create motivation, for example, through... Uh, 
other activities, alternative activities like sports. Sometimes it's just a discussion about the future. So you need to make sure that the motivation of children is steered toward more positive outcomes, not necessarily just social media and video games. And do you let your kids use all the social media that they want? Uh, Not necessarily, no. Too young. Okay. (laughs) Will you? (laughs) How old are they? I, I, don't, I don't think I will, but again, it's, it's not something that is easy to control. I, I think eventually they, they have to understand on their own that this is not necessarily good for them. And, and they understand eventually, you know, sometimes they use it excessively and do poorly in exams or do poorly in sports and they adjust their behavior. They can do that in most cases. So with everything you know, what age will you let them have a phone? I don't have a magic number. I think it depends on the situation. If you know a child takes a bus to school and it's a safety issue versus uh, developing an addiction issue, uh, having a phone by itself is not necessarily bad because you could uh, basically prevent access to many applications or control the usage time of certain applications. Everything in moderation is, is okay. But the American Medical Association just issued uh, two, three weeks ago or last month, I guess, Uh, recommendations for parents. So basically, I think it's not technology until the age of two. Then there is very limited, uh, they they call it screen time. So including all technologies, uh, television, iPad, cell phones, basically they provide very strict limits, uh, recommended limits, given not just the addiction aspects of the technology uh, and the emotional aspects, but more so, like you mentioned, the the emission of blue light that messes up sleep and sleep that regulates the uh, regulates appetite and regulates sedentary time and activity and all these things that influence obesity and physical health beyond just the mental health that we're talking about. Yeah, you know, we actually have the Tech Wellness Technology Guide that includes Dr. Young's screen time recommendations and building biologists and just a whole public Uh, policy scientists and people who create toys for children and all the experts got together and we came up with age recommendations actually for parents for all technology. It's just fascinating to see the importance of, you know, all the great minds coming together and everybody's pretty much on the same page that kids really shouldn't even be uh, exposed to technology in a great way before they're three. There's just so many other things that their mind should be doing and that they're, as their brains are developing. What is your opinion about that? Because like you said, the APA came in with, I think it was no younger than one, not two. Dr. Young has always recommended three, no technology until you're three. I, I, I don't know because I, I do not work in clinical settings, so I, I don't see children one, two, or three-year-old uh, and now it affects their brains or guess cognitive performance. We, we all have a sense, I mean, we could throw numbers and say one, two, three. It, it really doesn't matter the exact number, I think, at this point. I think families could have a sense of what's right and wrong for them. Uh, or maybe we should talk about a range of numbers. But certainly we know that it's, regardless of the age, we know that it's unhealthy to uh, give children, young children below the age of three uh, screen time. And if it's zero or one hour, it's still okay. But if certainly it's, it's like four or five hours a day, it's not okay. So it doesn't yeah, it's matter. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm saying we, we have an agreement, I think, uh, across the board that this is an unhealthy activity. 
uh, for very young children. What exactly is the cutoff? It really depends because it's, it's not just, uh, if you think about it, you know, German recommendation is not very useful, especially when you have uh, d- different uh, genetic variations. Some people are more sensitive to rewards than others. Some people have higher risk for developing uh, cardiometabolic syndrome than others. So um, I guess depending on your risk profile, people could adjust their screen time cutoffs uh, or when they start giving the children more screen time. But again, it's, it's not my area of expertise, so I cannot Got comment it. on exactly what's the cutoff. Okay, so Dr. Terrell, what, what are you working on now? Any research that we can look forward to? Uh, I work on many aspects uh, of social media use and video gaming as well. I try to see some positive aspects of video gaming, like, uh, like I mentioned before, preventing substance use or keeping children busy with uh, a little bit of video gaming, not too much, is actually healthy. Uh, in terms of so- social media, I try to see the other side of social media use. So one recent trend, I guess, in the last couple of years is that people try to quit social media. So uh, I guess it's more relevant for adults, uh, but also, I guess, uh, to some extent, uh, children. So I'm trying to see what happens when you terminate social media use. Are you going to uh, feel more stressed or less stressed? Uh, is your well-being going to be improved or not? Are your perceptions going to change? Uh, you're going to feel bad or feel positive about it? Uh, things of this nature, because eventually people will, I mean, at least some people try to uh, terminate or quit social media use. And it's important that we understand the implications of, of doing so. What, what happens after? That's so good. Yeah, because all of a sudden you're disconnected completely. Yeah. I mean, people are not fully disconnected because they still have email and other ways to connect with friends. But instead of being connected to 5,000 friends you don't know, you're connected to the 30 friends you know, and that's it. You know what I do? And I've always done this. First of all, my niece gave me my first Facebook account. It was about, gosh, it's just been eight years since I've had a Facebook account. And she signed me up and got me going. And and I realized immediately it was a huge time suck. So I give myself one hour every other week. And I just get on and I look at and see what everybody's doing. I post something occasionally. And it's it's kind of fun that way. It's really sort of like, how do I feel when I do it? I feel like it's like reading the news, really. It's like having a bit of a connection, knowing what's happening, but it's not my life. You know, there's people who just put every single thing that they do out there. For me, it's always worked. Yeah, no, that, that's a very healthy way to use it. And I wish all people were like that. But you know that this is not a reality. Uh, in one, one of our studies uh, with university students, we found that 40% reported on using social media while driving at least once in the last week, and 5% reported doing it every time they had driven in the last week. When you think about it, these are very scary numbers because the use of social media, it's not like texting even, mm-hmm. because te- texting is like very simple. You read like, you know, 100 characters and that's it. Social media is scrolling, looking at pictures. It takes much more processing from your brain and distracts you much more from driving. Wow. So, uh, there are many people who are not like you and do not use it once a week for an hour or once every other hey, week. Hey, that's just Facebook. I use Instagram. I think right. if, okay. if you have something important, like my site is very important and what we're talking about, 
spreading, you know, awareness that we need to have balance with technology, I actually need to post on Instagram once a day. That's a chunk of 15 minutes that I have to take out of my life to make that post. The question is how much time you spend looking for likes and checking again and again how many people viewed the posts and liked them. So uh, this is where things become unhealthy. What you're describing is normal work behavior. So using social media for conducting work is okay. Getting sucked into checking social media again and again 200 times a day uh, is, is unhealthy. Right. I think to your point about the, the phone use in the car at all, that's something that's definitely going to have to be uh, you know, discussed and we'll probably get some direction from the Department of Transportation eventually that we probably can't even use a phone while driving. Maybe, or maybe it's going to be so integrated in the cars. So, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be, we, we, we're not going to even touch it. You could just speak to it and that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. I'm sh- yeah, there, that has to happen. The future and driving and phones is a different topic. Right. A different topic. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited for the next research project. And you really haven't told us what it is. Is there something that you're working on right now that we can look forward to? Uh, we're looking at uh, other aspects of social media, like believing fake news or not. There, there are many, like you mentioned, there is like a self, self-image type of line of work that uh, we're exploring. So there are many bad things that stem out of uh, excessive use of social media. There are some positive things and we try to keep it balanced. We look both at positive and negative aspects of technology use. Wait, wait, you said something that I wasn't expecting. The fake news. You're studying how people react to fake news or whether they believe it or how they can discern if the news is fake or not. Yeah, so uh, we try, we, this is in very preliminary stages. We try to study the brain mechanisms that underlie uh, believing fake news and acting upon fake news. What do you know so far? Not much, not much. It's, it's in preliminary stages. Hmm. Because especially uh, in the world of electromagnetic radiation, there, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of myth. And I see people gravitating toward you know, what they hope and expect to be actual mitigation for the issue, but it really doesn't work. People are spreading fake news all over the place about EMF. And it's so interesting to watch people gravitate toward it. And I think, well, of course they are, because it seems like it's something that is going to hurt them and they need to do something about it right away. So of course you would, you would look for the thing that's going to work. And maybe that's the way it is with all of the fake news. It's just so fear-based and often salacious that, you know, you have to read it. Yeah. People believe what they want to believe. So they, in many cases, they have a gut feeling upfront that, you know, something is fake or something, or they, they know it's fake, but they want to believe it. So they keep on believing it anyhow. But uh, again, this is not, my findings, this is just general findings about fake news. We're, we're trying to look more specifically about the learning mechanisms in the brain and if we could train the brain to detect fake news. It's, it's a more complicated problem, but I guess it's a topic for a different uh, discussion. That's huge. I can't wait. You have to call me right away when you've released it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Trell. It's just been fascinating and fun and good luck to you. Best wishes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me over. You've been listening to Thriving with Technology, the tech wellness podcast. If you found the information useful, 
please like us on iTunes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.